You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Lord, thank you for each person here and thank you that together we get to be the church and we get to declare your praises and we get to declare the praises of the wondrous one who called us out of darkness into light. You are Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so we praise you and thank you that everything we just sung is true. You are true. Your promises are true. You are real and you are present here with us. And so as you have revealed yourself to us through singing, through your Holy Spirit, we now pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word, through the power of your spirit. And Lord, thank you again for this time to be with you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Oh, that was such rich worship. And I love, I love to worship with you. So, um, for those of you I haven't met, I'm Jay, and we're really glad that you're with us here this morning. And uh, we have been in a series on the Gospel of John, and we're not very far along into it, so this is the perfect time for you to be with us and to be joining the rest of us in this incredible series, in this incredible book, really. So as I was thinking about our time in God's Word this morning, um, I was reminded of a conversation I had this last week. I got a call from a cousin who I don't normally get to talk to, and uh, he was headed out hunting. Any hunters among us? Okay, some, yeah. And I used to hunt. Why I don't, we'll talk about another time. But I used to be a hunter. And um, I didn't go with this cousin, but another cousin I went on my first hunting trip when I was 16 years old. So in high school, I know that was just a couple years ago, I was on this hunting trip with my 17-year-old cousin and and these four guys who took us. And um, we went to Central Oregon and we were out in the high desert. And as you know, in the high desert at night, it gets dark really dark. There's no light pollution. So you can see the stars and nothing else. It's, it's dark. And so we're around this campfire. It's kind of cold, kind of cool, but um, we're huddled around it, you know, and these guys are exchanging stories and talking. And one of them kind of looks over at my cousin and me and says, you know, I'll never forget my first snipe hunt. <laughs> and my cousin and I look at each other and go, okay. And then the other guy goes, oh man, mine was great too. You never forget your first snipe hunt. And then the other guy pipes in and all of a sudden all four of them are talking, going, oh, it was just the greatest thing. And then they stop and these four pairs of eyes look at my cousin and I. They go, have you guys ever been on a snipe hunt? You haven't? Really? Well, you got to go. Well, why would we want to do that? Well, they're a nocturnal bird. They only come out at night, and they're attracted to noise. So we're going to fix you right up, and we're going to send you on this snipe hunt. Now, what you need to know is this was long enough ago. There was no Google, and there was no phone, because I know some of you are taking out your phones going, is there a snipe? And you're putting it into Google, and you'll find there really is a bird called a snipe. There are 22 different species of snipe, believe it or not. Don't say you never learned nothing in the church, right? Okay. So... But, you know, no phone, no Google. We can't see if these guys are pulling our leg or not. And so we said, okay, what do we need to do? Well, you can't take flashlights. They're afraid of light. And we'll give you these bags, and we'll put some rock in them, and you shake the bags, and the snipe will come. Just like that, just like that. you got to get far enough from the fire that you're not in the light, but you'll begin to hear them, and then you'll begin to see them. Now, if we would have been thinking critically about this, how do you see these nocturnal birds in southern or central Oregon at night when it's pitch black? 
But we weren't thinking that critically. So, okay. So we filled these bags with rocks, and my cousin and I went walking, and as the fire faded in the distance, and we really got a long ways away, we really couldn't see anything. We're out shaking these bags. And all of a sudden, I had this defining moment. And it was this. What are you doing? <laughs> what are you believing? Who are you following? And you can kind of see where this is going from here. If you were with us last week, we looked at this passage that precedes this one, still in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, and so many powerful identity statements about Jesus. And we looked at the reality that you'll never truly discover your true identity until you understand his. And so as we're looking at that and doing business with that, much more of those identity statements are going to be found in this passage as well. But we're going to build on that. Because what the heart of this passage really is about is what it means to follow Jesus. What does it mean to be his disciple, to be his apprentice, to be his follower? Well, that's where we're going to go in this passage. So I'm going to read this to you. We'll put it up on the screen. And as I do so, I want you to watch for how following is defined. What is a disciple? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, we're going to begin to peel back those layers with this passage this morning. So the next day, John, John the Baptist, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. And it was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. So the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and to tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. So Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. We'll come and see, said Philip. So when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Well, how do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree. You'll see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Wow, is there a lot there. And we can't peel back all the layers. But we're going to peel back some. And we're going to start with where the passage starts, and that's the identity of Jesus. If you were with us last week, you remember John said this before. He saw Jesus and he said, look, the Lamb of God. And we looked at the impact of that because 
for so many, if not all of the Jewish people who were there hearing his words, this just had to completely blow their minds. Because in one statement, John summarizes the ark not only of the entire Old Testament, but of the New Testament as well. Because the Bible is about redemption. It's about God restoring and redeeming and rescuing and renewing this sin-marred, broken world that we all live in. And so when he said, look, the Lamb of God, think of what had to come together for them. And we won't unpack this like we did last week. We just don't have time. But first you have the Passover, Exodus 12. Remember, God frees his people. And to commemorate that event, there was an annual festival called the Passover that reminded them that, that a lamb had to be sacrificed in order to spare them and their household from death. But one would come, ultimately, a lamb would ultimately come to spare everyone from death. Hmm. And then there was the Day of Atonement, which again was another annual thing that took place in the life of the, of the um, Jewish people. Mandated by God, and necessarily so, because in very bare terms here, he, the, the community would be called together, and the priest would take two goats, and one goat he would kill, he would sacrifice, and that would be payment for all the people's sins. And then there would be another goat that the priest would put his hands on, and symbolically he would be transferring all the sin of the people onto that goat, and that goat would be released into the wild, and that goat is what we call the scapegoat. That's where that word comes from in our language. And so you had this idea and this promise that the Day of Atonement looked to that one would finally come, the true Lamb of God, who would pay for everyone's sin, everyone's brokenness and selfishness, and who would also remove that sin from them. And then you have the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which by itself just strikes us as kind of weird and but when you look at it in context and what it pointed to, it again reinforced these ideas that there was one who would come who would be the ultimate sacrifice, who would remove the sin from the people and pay for it all at the same time. And then John says, there he is. Thousands of years of waiting. And now John is publicly saying, that's, that's the guy. That's the Lamb of God. Now what do you do when the Lamb of God is pointed out to you? You follow him. And that's, that's exactly what they do. They recognize who he is and they follow him. So do you. Do you recognize Jesus for who he really is? Because if you do, you will follow him. You'll want to follow him. Jamie and I were watching this old rerun of Law and Order and, uh, there was this one case where there was this cult leader who she had started this cult and they did a lot of bad stuff and she was being prosecuted for it. And old Jack McCoy, the prosecuting attorney, is questioning her. And he basically says, well, who do you think you are? And she says, well, you know, all great men and women of God have been persecuted. All great religious leaders are persecuted and misunderstood and marginalized. And he says, whoa, 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 what are you saying? And she said, okay, well, Jesus... Mohammed, the Buddha, Joseph Smith, and I, we're all the same. We're, we're all great religious leaders, and all of us have been or are being misunderstood and maligned. And he says, wait a minute, you, you put yourself in the company of them? And she says, absolutely. And that's what our culture does. Jesus is another way to God, another path of many paths 
to God. And yet what's interesting is that Jesus is the only major world figure who's in every major world religion. Everybody wants him in their religion, in their worldview. He is the great prophet. He is the great teacher. He is an avatar. He is a sage. He's a moral example. He's a great teacher. The irony is, even though Jesus is just like everybody else, in some way, shape, or form, everybody wants him in their religion. Isn't that interesting? But let's take that further. Jesus did not come to start a new religion. And he did not come to complete an old religion. He came to end religion. The Bible has always been about right relationship with God, right relationship with one another. It's always been grounded in relationship. The Old Testament was all about relationship with God. The New Testament is all about relationship with God. And if that wasn't enough, if you get out your phone, if you Google a definition of religion, roughly-ish what you'll get from Wikipedia or other sources is religion basically in, in, in broad strokes is defined as people somehow seeking God through a creed or a code or you know a religion or something. But Christianity isn't a religion. We are the only worldview, if you want to call us religion, that teaches that you don't go looking for God. God has come looking for you. Amen. So who is Jesus? Could it be that he was who he claimed to be? God himself coming and seeking us? And this is the great thing. Is there's promises throughout scripture. Scripture is replete. The Bible is replete with promises. That if you want God to show himself to you, he will. For those who seek him, they will find him. A verse I love from the Old Testament. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, you want to truly see Jesus for who he is, ask him to show you, and he will. He loves to honor that prayer because he comes seeking you and me. And this is something that, I'm going to let you into my mind here a little bit and how my mind works. I love this dynamic because... They start following Jesus. These two disciples of John, Andrew and whoever the other one was. And, and they start following Jesus and he turns around and says, presumably, and says, what do you want? And what we can't hear is inflection, right? And tone of voice. What was that like? Well, was he walking along and I was saying, what do you guys want? What do you want? Or was it, what do you want? Or somewhere in the middle or some other way. And I've always thought this has been a little awkward to me. That's just how I've always read it. It's kind of felt like a Buddy the Elf moment. You know, Buddy the Elf answers the phone. Hi, Buddy the Elf, what's your favorite color? You know, he's just, he's weird and kind of awkward. And this kind of feels like that. They're following Jesus. He turns around and whatever inflection he says, what do you want? And they go, I'm, where are you staying? <laughs> really? That's what, that's how you're going to answer that? But in fairness to them, that word staying also means remaining. And that's what you did with someone you wanted to follow. If you wanted to become someone's disciple in the ancient Near East, you did life with them. Uh, fully. And so, this isn't as weird as it may seem, Jay. You know, as I studied this, I realized, you know what? That's exactly what they should have been saying. Of course they wanted to be with Jesus. Of course they wanted to know where he was staying. And you may have saw this throughout the passage, but what does Jesus say? Come and see. How often does that get repeated in this passage? We found the Christ. Really? Come and see. 
Jesus to them. Come and see. And so to be with Jesus means that we follow him. If you're a disciple, it means you follow him. But we need to do some business with what following really means. Now, surely there was more context and more going on here. And the Gospels don't tell us all the details and everything that we want to know. They tell us what we need to know. But presumably, they had had some exposure to Jesus. But whatever the case, at this point in time, they choose to literally follow him. And it's a radical redirection of, of their life. In our culture, we kind of understand following. Kind of, sort of. I mean, social has come along and completely changed how we understand following, right? I mean, everybody's following someone. You know, are, are, are they cool? Are they an influencer? You know, do they, do they entertain you? Do you? Are you fascinated with them? Okay, so you begin following them. And as long as they keep fascinating you, as long as they keep meeting your needs or what you're looking for, you'll follow them. But if they don't, then, you know, you're on to the, on to the next. And it's kind of this transactional relationship that it can get diluted to. And that's not what following Jesus is all about at all. But sometimes we treat it that way. And we looked at this reality last week. Sometimes we treat God like the divine vending machine. If I do this, then I will get this. And we put God on the hook for promises that he never has given us. God, as long as I do what you want me to do, then you will give me a spouse who always understands me, who always meets my needs. And I'm over-exaggerating to make the point, right? But do we not do that? Or God, you promised me a spouse, period. You promised me that I would get married someday. Really? God promises that? No, he doesn't. God, you promised you would give me friends who would always be there for me. They would always get me. They would always understand me. They would always give me the support I need. No, God doesn't promise that, that either. But sometimes we put him on the hook for promises to us that he doesn't make. And then when he doesn't fulfill those promises or when he doesn't do things the way we think they should be done, then we're not so interested in following him. And that's not what it means to follow Jesus. Those aren't the kind of followers he's looking for. And he's especially not looking for followers who will treat him like he's their divine personal assistant. As long as I get my way, as long as it's on my terms, then, then I will do it. But if I don't like it, I'm not going to do it. And we live in a culture that continually tells us that truth is relative and you can pick and choose whatever works for you and whatever happens to fit the moment. So, you know, as long as it makes sense to me, I feel like doing it, I want to do it, it's, it's going to benefit me somehow or I can at least make sense out of it, then I'll do it. But otherwise, I'm not going to trust and obey that. You ever do that? And see, the reality is partial obedience is still disobedience. And when you and I, and I can default to this too, but when you and I choose to follow Jesus like that, you are no longer a follower, you are a fan. And Jesus is not looking for fans. He's looking for followers. On his terms and not, and not ours. You don't add Jesus to your life. You make him your life. Pastor Jay, you say that often, and I do, by design. So what does it mean? That's the heart of the question, isn't it? 
You don't add Jesus to your life, you make him your life. Okay, so how does that play out? Scripture talks a lot about this. This is one of my favorite places because it condenses and puts it, puts it in one place. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. I love this reality. When you receive Jesus into your life, you receive his spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit, who also is God, and he empowers you to live the very life that you're looking for and that you actually, in your heart of hearts, want to live. The life that God wants to bless. And once again, another distinctive of the Bible, from every other worldview and religion is that God wants to get so close to you, he wants to live inside of you. That's the type of intimacy that he wants with us. That's what it means to know him. So if you and I know Jesus as our God, if we've received him into our life, we have his Holy Spirit, we have empowerment to live a life of trusting and obeying him. But it doesn't stop there. What does it go on to say? Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and goodness acknowledge and knowledge self-control and self-control perseverance and perseverance godliness and, and on the list goes. So wait a minute. Is it about being empowered by the Holy Spirit or about my choices and, and effort to trust and obey? And the answer? Yes. You got it. You get this. Yes. It's about both. Well, Pastor Jay, I'm trying to do that, and it just doesn't work real well. And that's the problem, is that you're trying. Because sometimes trying isn't enough. Many years ago, some of you have heard this story. Um, I had a friend ask me if I want to do this thing called the STP. And I thought, hmm, what's that? And he said, oh, it's the Seattle to Portland ride. And I said, oh, that sounds great. I've always wanted a motorcycle. Maybe Jamie will let me get one and, you know, I'd be happy to ride a motorcycle from Seattle to Portland. Get in this big gang and leather up, dog collar with spikes. I'm, I'm there. I'll do it. And he said, no, it's not a motorcycle ride. It's a bicycle ride. Oh. <laughs> the whole way? The whole way. Yeah. A week? No. Two days. Some people do it in one. What? Really? Yeah. You want to do it? Okay. So... I go out and I borrow a bike, I ride it for two weeks, and then the STP comes, I didn't ride it very much those two weeks, to be fair. STP comes, I'm starting out with, you know, 5,000 of my closest friends at uh, Husky Stadium in Seattle, and we start off, and I begin to realize what I got myself into. <laughs> Rainier from Seattle is the 150 mile mark. I made it that day to Rainier. And I just could not go any farther after 14 hours of, of riding on a bicycle. Couldn't walk or sit for three days. <laughs> but I tried. I tried to do it. And that was the problem. I just tried. This time it was personal. I went out and I bought a bike of my own. Bought clipless pedals. Bought the shoes to go with them. Learned how to hydrate. Learned how to, to keep my caloric calories up, my calorie count up, and trained, didn't try, trained for a year, and rode it in one day and 18 hours. Wow. Really? Yeah, it was the last one. Yeah. <laughs> 
don't be too impressed. It was after dark, and it was like me and two of my closest friends. Everyone else had finished. All the booths were shut down, and it was like, oh, this is great. Great job, Jay. Still couldn't sit for three days. So we get this. And again, you, you really do get this as well. You want to be good at something like a sport, like riding a bicycle from Seattle to Portland, you don't try, you train. You want to be a good musician, you train. You want to do well in school, you train yourself to study and to read and to work. You want to be good at whatever you are doing, your hobby, your job, marriage, relationships. And some of you are thinking, boy, that's what I need to do. I need to train my husband or wife. No, that's not the point. <laughs> no, I could just see what's going on there. No, no. Okay, let's put the train back on the tracks here. No, if you want to grow and excel and do well at anything, you don't just try, you train yourself to do it. And the same is true of following Jesus. In January, in our communities at Grace, our small groups here, we will return to the study and really the practice of the spiritual practices together. Because it's a way that we train ourselves in godliness. And just so we're on the same page, Paul says this to Timothy in Timothy chapter 4. Train yourself to be godly. Don't just try to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Don't just try to trust and obey. You train yourself to trust and obey by being in the Word, by being in community, which is where we're going next, by responding to the Holy Spirit when He reveals Himself to you, but through prayer, and one of the amazing dynamics that you see in this passage, and you'll see it throughout God's word, Old Testament and New, is so often people are discovering and growing and, and deepening in intimacy with God because they're together. There is a place, absolutely, for personal relationship with Jesus between you and him. But there is a dimension of a relationship with God that you will only understand and grow in when you're in community. Scripture is explicit about that. And to your credit, here you are. You're, you're in community. This is one form of community that, that we do together. And that is absolutely fantastic. But wouldn't it be great if 80%, just let's grab a number, because if you shoot at nothing, you'll hit it. So let's just grab a number. If 80% of those who come and call Grace home were in a small group by this fall, Understanding that, you know, there are seasons and stages of life where you can't and shouldn't be in a small group. You just can't. You can't swing it. Totally get that. There are seasons when that doesn't work. But wouldn't that be epic? I, I think it's something that, that could happen. And I think it's something worth, worth working towards. Because we grow in Jesus together. And yes, this is an important part of that. But there's a dynamic that happens in a smaller context as well. And speaking of smaller contexts... I love Andrew's example in this passage. Did you catch that it said the first thing Andrew did when he discovered who Jesus was, recognized him, realized who he was, he went and got Peter and brought him to Jesus. And this is what we see Andrew doing all throughout John's gospel. Every time it seems like we're talking about Andrew, he's bringing someone to Jesus. In John chapter 6, which we'll get to, you know, in the future here, he 
brings the boy with the fish and the bread to Jesus, and then Jesus performs the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, really the 5,000 plus. But who was it that brought the boy to Jesus? Andrew. John 12, some Greeks want to see Jesus. They first go to Philip, and what does Philip do? He goes and tells Andrew, and he and Andrew bring those folks to Jesus. I think there's something there for us. I think we have a special role, a special calling as Jesus followers, as those who love and follow him to bring others to come and see for themselves what we have. And there are a number of you who, again, you so get this and you just, you do this. You, you bring people to come and see Jesus. But it does beg the question of all of us, me included, when's the last time you brought someone to grace? To, to come and see Jesus for themselves. Can you think of neighbors, friends, family, coworkers? And I can answer yes to all those. Well, maybe not coworkers, but all the rest. <laughs> who, who I could be inviting to come and, and see Jesus for themselves. We want to see this part of our culture deepen this coming year. We want to be a bringing and including culture, meaning... In our thinking together, when we come to worship together like this, that if you're not bringing someone who you've invited, then you're looking around after the service, before the service, during the service, to someone who you can include in community, who you can interact with and say hi to and extend community, community to. Do you realize if we deepened this in our culture, this time next year, we'd, we'd be out of room. I think that'd be a great problem to have. I would love that. And again, it's not about numbers. It's about people having hope. It's about changed lives. It's about people having what we have. And all this matters because Jesus saves the why for last, and so have we. Did you see how this passage ended? It, it, it kind of sneaks on by until you realize, wow, what, what is Jesus saying there? Look at this. So let's build up to this. Jesus sees Nathaniel says, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. That's a pretty amazing assessment. And Nathaniel's stunned. How did you know me? And we don't know if this fig tree was out of sight, a long ways away, or whatever it was. It was miraculous that Jesus saw him under that fig tree. And that's enough for Nathaniel. He says, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus says, you think that's cool? And a little translation there. You're going to see greater things than that. And then he says this, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now it's easy to read that and go, Hmm, okay, that's kind of cool. No, that's more than cool. This again would have been another one of those for everyone who is listening. Because Jesus is reaching back thousands of years to their history, to Genesis chapter 28. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He's reaching back to a story about Jacob. And Jacob, his name means liar, deceiver. And again, this is so very cool. Notice how Jesus said in Nathaniel, here's an Israel without, Israelite without deceit. And then he references Jacob, who wasn't that way. 
And so because Jacob had lied to his brother Esau and stolen his birthright, Esau literally wanted to kill him. So Jacob's mom and dad send Jacob to Uncle Laban to find a wife and to get out of Dodge before he gets killed. And so Jacob is making this journey, very long journey, to Uncle Laban. And it says in um, Genesis 28 that he comes to this one area and he's tired. And so he literally pulls up a rock for a pillow and goes to sleep and has a dream. So, question for you and me. Do you remember your dreams? You go to sleep, you have a dream, you wake up the next morning, can you remember it? No, not for me. I think I must live in my nothing box when I sleep. Because when I wake up, I remember nothing. I never remember my dreams. My bride, on the other hand, Jamie, does. And I love it because she can tell in great detail what she dreamed and what she saw. And, you know, we, we talk about that on our runs, whatever. But I'm not like that. But all of us, and me rarely, have had occasions where we have a dream that we, we do remember it. And so Jacob falls asleep and he has this vision, really. He has this dream. And here's God in heaven. And he sees heaven opened, and God is speaking to him, and God is basically reiterating, reconfirming the promises that he made to his grandfather Abraham. He's now affirming those are going to come true for Jacob as well, that he's going to redeem Jacob from his brokenness and his lying and his sinfulness and still use him to accomplish his purposes. But that being said, Jacob also sees this vision of heaven being opened, God's above, God speaking to him, and there's a ladder. Really a stairway, I think, in our thinking. But there's a ladder, there's this stairway, and angels are going up and down it. And he wakes up and he goes, whoa! And not too much translation there. That's pretty close to the Hebrew. He says, awesome, this is an awesome place. And he said, God was here. And he names the place. And he calls it Bethel, which means house of God. And then he goes on his way. Jesus, in a few short sentences, reaches all the way back into this history that they would have known and says, do you know what Jacob dreamed? I am Jacob's dream come true. Yes. I am the bridge to heaven. Yeah. I am the ladder to heaven. I am the way to God because I am God and I'm right here among you. Amen. Amen. Yes. Amen. Hallelujah. As the worship team comes, and as we prepare to respond to this, this only has meaning and significance in your life and mine as if he is your God. He can't just be the God. He needs to be your God. There is a defining moment where you receive him into your life as your Lord and Savior, and I'm going to lead us in a prayer to be able to do that. But for those of us who do know him, who do follow him, he, he is our God, then my friends, this is all about hope. How do you need hope this morning? What are you up against? What are you struggling with? What are you anxious about? What are you afraid of? This is the God who is present, who is here, and who gives hope. So as we sing this song in just a moment that talks about offering ourselves to God, offer yourself to him. Tell him how you need hope. 
ask him for hope. Ask him to be your hope. Let me pray with you. Lord, I pray for any in this room here who recognize, realize that, yes, they believe in God, but you are not yet their God. And I pray that they would choose right now, just between you and them, to invite you into their heart and life to say, Jesus, I need you. I want you to be my God. And Lord, I pray for the rest of us who have made that choice that we would remember you are the divine promise keeper. Every single promise you do make to us, you honor and fulfill. You are the God of hope. And you know all of our hearts and where we need that hope. So God, would you answer? Would you provide? And Lord, for those here who still might be asking questions and wrestling with this, would you not leave them alone until they come to know you because of the blessing that they will experience through you? We offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. He is the God of the impossible. So what are you up against this morning? There's hope. There's hope in Jesus Christ. And there's hope in community. And if there's any way that we can pray for you, we would love to do that. We believe passionately in the power of prayer. And that's why we have teams up here who would love to pray with you. I know them personally. They're wonderful. I feel 100% confident in entrusting you to them. They will love you and pray for you. Please, please let us, let us do that. And if you're a guest with us again this morning, man, welcome to our crew. Welcome to our church, our community. Right around the corner there is our cafe. Our Next Steps team is waiting for you. They'd love to meet you, extend some community to you, get you the free caffeine of your choice. And with, with that being said, I'd like to leave you with this out of Hebrews. I'd like to pray this benediction, this blessing over us as we prepare to go from here. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. May he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. So go and live for him. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.